Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for joining me today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. Today, we've got a jam-packed show for you. We're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about all the controversial issues in your country, which really, in many ways, shouldn't be controversial. And then we're going to do a deep dive into economics because there's a lot of things going on today that are affecting your wallet that is happening in D.C. that you need to be aware of and you need to start fighting back and starting making freedom win. As we spoke last week with Eric Brady, we need to make liberty win. I'm joined today by Brad Palumbo. We're going to talk about in his personal capacity when I talk about things like Juneteenth and Pride Month but then his professional capacity he's a writer for Fee he's a it's a great website we had his editor on a couple of weeks ago or maybe a couple of months ago now John Miltimore this is on Fee we're going to talk about economics we're going to talk about what the Democrats are doing with healthcare we're going to talk about the, the no tax hikes from Joe Biden that actually are tax hikes and we're going to talk about all oh, fun stuff about lockdowns Brad thanks so much for joining me thanks for having me man it's good to be with you Absolutely. It's great to finally meet you. So there's a lot of one of the things I always get frustrated is, you know, I'm Irish. I'm, I'm not in your country. I'm not in the day to day political grind. And I always seem to find with, because everything is so overtly political in your country and it's overtly tribal, that there are things in your culture that really shouldn't be that controversial, but all of a sudden seem to be. And this week, it seems to be Juneteenth is the hot topic, you know, where Everyone was having an opinion. You had conservative commentators calling it lame and, and double downing on that. And you had different people saying different things. Of a country that's based around freedom, surely this is something that it should be like common sense that we all agree on, right? Yeah, the basic idea of Juneteenth, Juneteenth that we should celebrate the end of slavery is something that literally everyone should agree with. I think it's fine to celebrate. It's commendable. It's not a new holiday. People have a misconception. It's just formally being recognized, but it's been celebrated in the U.S., in the African-American community for many years. Uh, I, I think actually, like, this is one of these distortions that happens because of our media and internet echo bubbles. I bet you nine out of 10 people on the street, if you walked up and asked them what they thought of Juneteenth, Many of them wouldn't have heard of it, even despite all this news. And yeah. basically everyone would say, yeah, I'm fine with that. I don't, that, yeah, that's cool. I don't, it's literally only on Twitter where some right-wing people can get attention by being edgy and saying they're trying to replace the 4th of July or in media where somebody can have a, a monologue or a hot take where those things, they self-select for the more extreme views because those are the ones that get the attention Honestly, most people, almost no one actually finds it controversial. But even then, on the flip side, right, like even most like liberals or Democrats on the street, if you ask them about Juneteenth, wouldn't say anything crazy. They wouldn't say America is evil. We need to end July 4th. They just say, oh, we should also celebrate Juneteenth. But some of their media representatives and their Twitter blue checks in these echo chambers take it to a crazy level. And then you have, and they'll say things like America is based on white supremacy and racism and America's founding value was slavery and all these things that we do object to, even we, though we agree that slavery is horrible, we think that the founding and the constitution and the bill of rights are wonderful things that paved the way for the freedom that we now all enjoy. Um, and that's why it's become divisive when it, un it absolutely shouldn't be. Absolutely. And the one thing that seems to be, I find, and especially this is hypersensitive on social media, but even talking to people, because I have friends on both sides of the aisle, nuances seems to have gone out the window. So like Juneteenth, like there's certain things I like about it and there's certain things because it's become political. Like, for example, I'm, I'm a very limited government type of guy. I'm a constitutionalist. I love your founding documents. Do I think the federal government should be getting involved saying, hey, this is now a fake off? No. 
But do I think we should celebrate it? Yes. Do I like the, the, the Juneteenth flag with the that looks like really like it reminds me of North Korea slash you know China with the hand and stuff? I don't like it. I personally don't like it. I don't think you should replace the flag. But the idea of Juneteenth of where it's down in Texas and there's these slaves who were still actual slaves, and then the news, because there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't everyone going, hey, all slaves are free, and it got trending on Twitter, or they didn't have cell phones. It took a while for the message to get out there. That's a message that should be celebrated. And it shouldn't be divisive, but yet in this world, we, we find reasons to be offended. We do. And it's funny you bring up the federal holiday point, because my one objection to Juneteenth is that the, Fed, the feds do not need another day off. Right now, we pay federal employees. Um, I think the average salary is over $100,000, or at least it's, it's higher. The average federal government employee salary is higher than the private sector because we just pay these people in Washington so much money. And yet they have so many paid days off that they're close, not quite yet. But this takes us one day closer to it basically being they work four day weeks. So the one thing I would have said if I was in the Senate on this legislation, take away a different federal holiday, de-recognize something else. Because unfortunately, we should celebrate Juneteenth, but by making it another federal holiday, you're giving overpaid bureaucrats yet another paid day off on our dime. And that's the part I object to. Yeah, well, I'll never forget, someone told me this before, and this is, you know, just as a joke, but, like, they were deadly serious as well. It was like, you know what, I don't mind these federal holidays once it's not for, you know, corporate America, you know, once it's not the federal government. I'll pay you, you know, $1,000 a day to not sit around and screw my life up, you know, so. <laughs> and that's what, it, you know, that's, it's kind of what it's come to, because you have all these bureaucrats getting involved in different things. But one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about um, is I, I don't guess... Like, I always try, I've got friends on the left, I come from a very socialist country, and I grew up with a mindset of, I want to know what you think. Even if I, you know, even if you, if I had a communist on the show, I, I would want to see, okay, how do you get from what I think is fairly normal to the communist point of view, and try and see what do they buy into. Um, one of the things that really frustrates me is this um, idea of, we have to be divided on every issue. Gayness is a gay pride month, Right. This should be another issue that should be fairly easy to deal with from my gay friends. And um, I would love to hear what your opinion on it is, because everyone today wants you to base an argument on, let's, let's, all I want to see is your race. What are you? Oh, well, you're black. I don't want to see race. I don't want to see sexuality. I don't care about it. I want to see what your opinions are. This whole idea of my friends telling me who well, I've got gay friends and I'm a Christian and yes, we can have gay friends. It's okay. But, you know, when I talk to them, why do you want gay marriage? It's normally comes down to two reasons. One, so we can file taxes together. And two, because of debt benefits, so we can pass things over. And if we can get those type of issues sorted out, then, you know, the whole, in, you know, type of gay movement, you know, we, if we get that type of equality, we'd be okay. Would, what would you say to that? Well, in the U.S., we have that. And we've, we've had that. The problem is they're not content with that in terms of, everyday gay people on the street are, but the real problem, the reason that gay rights is so divisive still um, in, in the US is twofold. But I think one of the big drivers of it is that the progressive left and the LGBT activists that dominate the LGBT media, the organizations, the Democratic Party, they have conflated gay rights and gay identity with transgender rights, which are obviously at a different stage, and with overall Democrat and progressive policies and big government. So for example, the, the most, uh, the biggest gay rights organization, put that in scare quotes, gay rights in the US is something called the Human Rights Campaign. And they give lawmakers uh, gay rights scorecards every session. But if you vote against Obamacare, or if you vote against the DACA program for illegal immigrants who came to the country at a young age, if you voted for Justice Neil Gorsuch, or a bunch of other things that have nothing to do with gay rights, they actually mark you down as anti-gay on that scorecard because they say it's all about equality and justice. So they've conflated LGBT acceptance with overall progressive agenda, which makes it much more divisive, and then they've also taken it 
to even when they stay within the realms of LGBT issues, they take it to a new extreme where they no longer just want marriage or just want equality under the law. No, now they want to like chase down a Christian baker and force them to come to their wedding and bake a custom cake. And so now it's like they've cleared the hurdles when it comes to um, equality under the law, marriage, these sorts of things, taxes, which I do believe in and I'm glad we've accomplished but now they want to take it to the next level where the LGBT activists want Christians or other people to have to not just tolerate them, but actively embrace them and use the government to force them to do so if they won't. And that's why it's still so divisive. On the flip side, of course, there are st still, uh, for example, gay marriage equality has a majority support among Republicans now, a majority support anti-discrimination protections. But obviously, there still are a good number of people in that corner who harbor different levels of bias or animus towards gay people. Um, and that's still a serious problem too, though I think that's getting better. So those are the two reasons why it's still divisive. So you as a, as a, a gentleman who is uh, gay, what's the experience like, you know, as someone who isn't gay, you know, like for me looking in from the inside in, and I know it's always easier when you're looking in at someone else's house, that things have improved. Obviously social media is a different kettle of fish because you know, I, th I think it's always unfair when you sort of go, well, so, you know, there's a lot of gay bashing or racism on social media. There isn't really anything nice on social media. You're not, it's not like you're the exception. Like, oh, it's just social media. We're great to everyone. We're very accepting, but it's gay people we hate. It's just everyone seems to be, hey, I get called a fat, I'm ugly, all this different stuff. It's not, a, I don't think it's a, an accurate parameter to go by. I tend to go by society. We have, like, there's not as much, I'm sure there are some sections of society, like the, Q, the KKK are still around in very, very small numbers. I'm sure there are some people around, but as a general person, as a gentleman like that, do you still have, ever have issues to overcome? Or what are the obstacles that you face because of your, your you know, your choice of sexuality? Yeah, so... Um... There are still issues, but the biggest one is actually internal. The people that okay. don't, one of the hardest things is like when you're growing up and you're gay and, and or lesbian, it's like you struggle for years still to try to be normal and try to not be gay and you fight against it and you tear yourself up inside. I dated girls in high school, tried to force myself to like them and date them and was in denial for years. And that's because... Obviously, obvi I agree with you. There's been so much progress. There's much less open homophobia or anything, but there's still immense societal pressure that that heterosexuality is the norm and the normal, and it is objectively. But there's a lot of pressure still to conform that you feel internally. So even if you never experience homophobia a day in your life, being gay and coming out and coming to grips with it is still an internal struggle that's very hard for people in many cases. And the flip side is um, that there still are a lot of people who grow up in very religious families, whether they're Muslim families or Orthodox Christian families, where they have serious familial challenges when they come out as gay still. It leads to harmful relationships or them being disowned or kicked out of their house. And those things are less and less common, but they're not nearly as eradicated as you would think just from the general tone of society on these issues. It's also different in different parts of the country. And then there's still just um, a self-consciousness, right? You're not normal. You're not like, I still do feel a little self-conscious sometimes when I'm out in public with my boyfriend of several years because we're different and we stand out. And yes, most people are fine with it now and no one, I, well, not no one, I have actually been um, like harassed or insulted or even chased a couple times on the street by, by homeless wow. people yelling slurs. Uh, but 99% of the time, right? No one's saying anything, but like people are looking at you or you just feel that they are because you're self-conscious internally, right? So it's still, it's, I would love for one day sexuality to be like eye color. The same thing yeah. with skin color, actually. I would love it for it to be like eye color where just no one cares and you just blend in. But it's still not quite that. Despite all the tremendous progress we've made, there's still a significant sense of difference and other. And just to give an example, because we're talking about culture, there was just this NFL player who came out as gay yesterday or this week. Yeah. And it's a big deal. And everyone's saying, oh, well, come on, it doesn't matter. Everyone's going to throw him a party now. 
that's true for the media. It's true for pop culture. But within the NFL, within professional sports, there's a very macho culture still where it would be really hard to be gay and not get looked at or have people whisper about you or have people talk about you behind your back. There's a reason that no one has ever come out before retirement uh, until until now, even though, you know, the NFL wears the rainbow pride logo and has and paints the, the field rainbow during June and all these other things. There's just that lagging cultural element of it that hasn't fully changed, that people still have to live in and grapple with. And I don't know if it will ever really go away. Well, like, I suppose it's hard because I, I saw that NFL player and, like, I've always had a very simple rule on sex. And it's, unless you're a participant, I don't care. Or, sorry, you shouldn't care. So, like, the only sex life I care of, and it's mine, and it's, it's, there's nothing to care about, to be honest. So, it's, it's just not, you know, it's fun. So, like, when I see people come out and say, I'm bisexual, or I'm this, I'm like, I, I don't care. You know, like, that NFL player, when that was actually an issue, but that was, you know, I was like, okay, I don't, well, I don't watch the NFL anymore for a lot of other reasons, but I, I don't care. It's just you're a tight end, you're a quarterback, go play football. When you get off the field, if you want to, if you want to go sleep with 10 men, 10 women, you want to have drug field orgies, I'm not going to care. You know, just, I like you on the Sunday or whatever time you play football at. But there seems to be this cultural element where it seems to be such, you know, I'm gay, so you have all these headlines and this this adoration. Um, do we do? How do we get past it, or is it possible to get past it? I do want us to get past it, but right now it still kind of makes sense. I know, I know that you're um, a European, so you'll get this in the Premier League in in England. I'm a soccer fan in the yeah. Premier League. In Part the of the team, by the way. In the League One, in the League Two, in all four levels of professional English football, there are zero openly gay players. And many ex-pros have come out as gay later and said, I never could have been. It would have been so toxic. My career would have been ruined. My coaches would have, my relationship would have changed. My team would have felt differently about me. And the same is true in the NFL today. So while that's still the case, I think it does matter when they come out as gay because I agree. I don't care. And ideally, no one should care. But because there's still that lack of representation, I think there is some value in someone like him coming out publicly, showing the next generation of 13-year-old boys who love football, but maybe are struggling with their sexuality and might be gay, that they can grow up over the next few years and still believe they could become an NFL player like anyone else, right? Rather than having to write off that dream because of what they think they know about themselves and that's why i do think it still matters but I, I agree with you i would love to get to the point and i think we're moving more and more towards that point where that kind of news or development is just greeted with a collective shrug like okay whatever what are your stats for the season yeah so then that was the next point you know obviously we've got pride month and there's literally all these different things and I would love to hear your opinion, you know, as someone who went through this life, you know, life experience counts the fair lot. I think we're in a culture, and there's a report from England, um, where we are so over-sexualized. Like, I'll give you, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you don't follow much of English news, or maybe you do, but there was this report where they interviewed, like, 4,000 people under the age of 18 on their views on sex. And, like, the most harm, like, it was harmful from the women, but boys were by far, like, some of the quotes were horrific where they admitted to watching, like, 10% of these people were watching porn every day. Um, 40% watched it, like, twice a week. But one of the most harmful quotes was from a young boy, I think he was 14, where he was asked, like, are you a virgin? He went, no. And he went, and the quote really heartbroken me was, like, I've had sex with, you know, this girl, but it, don't worry, it's nothing important. It wasn't like we got intimate. We never kissed or anything. We've become so, yes, that's for a 14-year-old boy. That's so crazy. we literally are over-sexualized. At what point, because we see all this Pride Month, and I, I'm not the one any discrimination. Like I will walk hand in hand. I walk, I've said this on the air many times. If Al Sharpton wanted to walk arm in arm with me about you know gays in the Middle East, hey, let's not throw gay people off building. Let's not stone them. I'm there. I don't care what you're political. I walk with a communist not to do that. But at what point do we need to sort of safeguard our kids that, you know, there should be a point in time where we don't in introduce sexuality to kids till, you know, a certain age? 
especially since your life experience. Right. I I agree with you, but oh, no, I'm not conflating porn with gay. Sorry, don't please don't think that. No, I know, but I know. As a general rule, but there is a difference between sexuality and sex. So the same way that you explain to kids what marriage is between a man and a woman, but you don't tell them what sex is or how babies are made until they're older. I think it's fine for children to be introduced to the concept that some families have two dads, some have two moms, right? And if they see at a pride parade or something that that exists, that's not scandalous or sexual. The problem is a lot of these pride rallies turn into freak shows where they let their freak flag fly and they, you know, march in leather kink gear or with like the dog puppy masks or they're almost naked and other things. And I think that's very harmful because they're conflating bad stereotypes about gay people with this hypersexuality, which is not true objectively. Um, and so that's part of the problem. I think there's something to the idea of gay pride month in theory, because like I said, there's still people are like, well, being gay isn't something to be proud of, whatever. Sure. In theory, that's true. But there is something to be proud of in the real world when you've lived through the challenges and dealt with them all. Um, it's a pride in the sense of self of overcoming and being who you are despite the challenges. So there is some validity to the pride idea in concept, but in practice, the pride rallies and movements have become left wing, extremely left wing. You go there and there's gun control signs and anti-Trump posters. There's um, pro-abortion paraphernalia and Planned Parenthood sponsors the event or all sorts of things they kick well my favorite one is because you usually see it are some of the pictures i've seen from the rallies in your things where you've got the muslims and the lgbt standing together and it's kind of go do you understand what's in the Quran? it's a little awkward there but uh yeah. I, I, think, I think the other the other part of it as well is like they've they, they don't shy away from the politicization i mean new york city's official pride rallies banned gay police officers from marching because they're racist and oppressing LGBT people of color or something ridiculous. And so they're literally just openly imbuing the pride movement with leftism and leftist thought. And, and that's so, so harmful because it's discriminatory, first of all, against LGBT gay people because we're individuals and we can have our own opinions and think for ourselves. We're not a hive mind. Um, and then also it's harmful in the public image because the more you associate the rainbow and pride and gay rights and trans people with left wing ideology, the more you make people on the right or in the center or in the middle who don't support that ideology feel like, oh, well, I can't really support gay rights then. I mean, that that's all the progressive stuff. And I don't believe in that. I'm pro-life. I'm pro-gun. I'm pro-limited government. But in reality, you can, because it's separate from that. It's not part of that, but they conflate it with that, and it's really harmful. So I guess that's my kind of long soliloquy on the idea that, in theory, there's something good about the Pride Month and concept, but in practice, it's really been perverted, and I think it does more harm than good. Awesome. And I, do you ever get sick of the pandering just before we move on to other subjects, like where you have a month, you know, because oh, this idea of where it's like June is my month, you know, I, I don't exist for 11 months of the year, but for one month of the year, I get rainbow flags. And I have companies changing their advertising and different things. I do saw, you ever get sick uh, of it? Yeah, I, there was a line on a TV show. It was something like, oh, well, she'll kick you faster to the curb faster than a corporation kicks the gays to the curb after after June or something. And I was like, this is just so accurate, right? Because it's like they, they have the rainbow flavored M&Ms and like all the logos and everything. But what's really funny is with these woke corporations, when they change their Twitter profile to the rainbow, but then you go to like nike's saudi arabia account and they didn't yeah. change the logo there and it's yeah. just so hollow the pandering so i do find the virtue signaling pretty insufferable though i guess i'll say in in a partial concession it's a sign i guess that that the pandering is toward acceptance is good because 
50 years ago, they would have been afraid to put the rainbow because everyone would have opposed it. So I guess I'd rather have them pander in our favor than against us. But ideally, they would just not pander at all. Yeah, and even your government did this where, you know, Joe Biden took this great, brave, epic stand. You know, we're going to have all the pride flags above the U.S. embassies, but not in the Middle East. Not in a Muslim-based yeah. country, just in, you know, in oh, Ireland, really? in England. Yeah, he, oh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't in any of those countries. You know, like, and it's like, yeah, and like, but what gets me is first pandering to you, but then also this self, you know, aggrandizing or, you know, making yourself out to be this epic hero or, or fighter for gay rights. It's like, you know, if you want to have an issue, like, you know, if of all the things in this again as an outsider, as a strike guy looking in as a Christian, is like, if you want to stand up for gay rights, the place you do it is maybe the Middle East. Maybe it's China. Not in Ireland and England and in Europe where it's pretty much similar to obviously, you know, obviously going from what you've said, there's still a few obstacles to overcome, but not, not anywhere near the Middle East. But just yeah. getting on to another subject, um, your thoughts, which you'll, uh, you can feel free not to answer this. The idea of the gay people and lesbians and bisexuals sort of been cast together now with transgender and all the, the activism that's going on there, that is going to hurt your movement, no? Just as a matter of fact, Correct. It will. Um, I have mixed feelings on it because I guess to start, I would say that I think sexuality and gender identity are different things. The L and the G and the B have something in common that they do not share with the T. It doesn't really make sense because they are categorically different to me. I don't, I, I, I do support people who are trans living their lives live how they want and being free. Um, but it has never really made sense to me to have those mesh together, but I don't call the shots. It just has been. And the truth, whether we set, set the, what should be aside for a moment, the truth is the trans rights and controversies and ideology associated with it is much more controversial. And, um, I would say polarizing than the gay rights because Essentially, the gay rights movement was just asking people to let us be, let us live how we want. Whereas the trans rights movement is basically asking people to change what they think and how they act, use different pronouns, define sex differently, pretend that there are no biological differences between males and females that would matter in sports. So it's much a harder sell. And so just as a matter of fact, it does hold the movement back. And I find myself torn on this because on the trans question, I don't really fully embrace the progressive view, the woke view at all, but I, because fundamentally I think people are born male or female, biological sex is real. And it's actually key to the idea of being gay is like, if, if gender was just a feeling, then there's no reason I couldn't have chosen to be straight, right? There's science and biology there. But at the same time, there are people who are genuinely, I'm friends with Blair White, who's a YouTuber who is trans and conservative. There are people who are born and they feel trapped in the wrong body. They strong from a young age, feel like they are the other sex. And if they, as adults, I don't support children doing this, which is part of the woke movement. But as adults, if they want to change genders and live as the opposite sex, I'm not going to pretend that they that like Caitlyn Jenner was never Bruce Jenner and yeah. right, and that there's no oh, did you dead name her? I'm sorry, folks. The Blaze the Blaze offers a sincere apology. We do not <laughs> or agree with these views at all. <laughs> but no, I you're it's funny, I'm, I'm but teasing. it's like they have gone so extreme on that kind of thing. Yeah. But for people like Blair or Caitlin, they're adults. If they, if they have this consistent problem and they want to live as the opposite sex, I say you do you. I will use your name. I will use your pronouns. And there are some people on the right and in society at large who are kind of cruel to these people and mock them and make fun of them and are very rejecting them totally and that's not either. So I want this middle road approach where we don't pretend that biological sex doesn't exist because it does. And we don't start giving 10 year olds puberty blockers, but the actual authentic examples of people with gender dysphoria 
should, we should be tolerant of them and want them to have every rights and dignity that anyone else have to live their life as adults as they see fit. So that's my kind of complicated middle ground view on it. I agree. And like, you know, I'm a Christian. So like, I think the power of Christ is, you know, you, you know, I may dislike your sin or hate your sin, but I'm going to love you because we're all sinners. And I think, you know, it's a fundamental view. I try and treat everyone with respect. I've never really, as far as I know, met a lot of transgender people. Maybe I have and They fooled me because they're, they're disguised and they're new. The new you was was really good. But if I did, like I say, I've loved loads of gay friends and stuff. And I never go to Dallas where they've seen two, two lesbian, a lesbian couple. They're fantastic. They're conservative. They're awesome fun. I go shooting with one of them. Um, but I'll always be respectful. But I think one of the things that's troubling to me is, and I think it, this is where, you know, gay people need to be very smart, is if you want to just go have transgender surgery and you're an adult and, you know, I, I believe a free choice. Sometimes, even if it's the most dumbest decision, I'm not your nanny, the government's not your nanny, go do it. But one of the things I, I don't know if you've been following the story of Laura Lovers, this New Zealand person who's like a 41 year old man who was a man for the vast majority of his life, is now a woman and is now getting cleared to compete in the Olympics. Now, what annoys me about this is this should be the most no brainer conversation. Let me explain to you why. I'm a powerlifter, right? In the category I lift in is two, six, four pounds and above, right? If I go to my gym, which has 20 members of powerlifting, we're all competitors, right? If I take a kid, you know, and there's a kid who's, who competes in the one turkey group, and I go bench press with him, and I go squat with him, and I go deadlift with him, he's not lifting anywhere near the amount of weight I do. Ask anyone on the outsider. He's a similar build to you, but I'd say a lot smaller. There's no way I could say I won. I beat him. I lifted more weight than him. There's no one that's going to look at the two of us and go, that's not a fair fight. Look at the size of him and look at the size of you. You should lift more than him. That's standard biological. That's not racist. That's not xenophobic. That's not anything. That's just common sense. Now you have a, a guy who's been a guy all his life going to compete against women. And what annoys me is the feminists seem to be all okay with this. It, it, it's just so yeah. screwed up. Like If you want to talk about a war on women, and especially in sports, and the reasons people ask me this, this, I was having this conversation with someone this week, saying, why is sports such a big deal and why are you so ruffled about this? Do you know how many people get scholarships in America and who literally, their way out of poverty is getting to college via scholarship? If you have men competing with women, guess what? You're going to have all the men in the men's field and then maybe 10% or 20% of women who don't should be competing, getting those scholarships, not getting there anymore. That's a really bad policy in action and in principle. How do we get, break this down and make common sense to people? Yeah, I, I, it is. And I, I think it's generally conservatives are right on the issue. We shouldn't pretend that there's no biological difference between men and women. I mean, I go back to... Um, and you can accept trans people, their freedom and their right to be treated with dignity without having to pretend that sex doesn't matter in sports or that science doesn't exist. I go back to my own experiences. I played a soccer. I still play on a team, but I played in high school on the varsity team and the boys were not very good. We lost more games than we won, but the girls, their team actually was pretty good. They won a lot of their games in their league. But when we scrimmaged, we would destroy them. We would clobber them. And that's with us going kind of soft, to be honest. Yeah. Because there are just innate differences in speed and strength. And some of them go away with gender therapy, like hormones, but not all of them. Not bone length, bone density, height. A lot of these things are just there, especially if you transition as an adult. Um, so it's not fair. Uh, and it, it is a question of women's rights and equal access to sports. But this is part of the problem that we can't have this conversation because the left has labeled any debate bigoted. Anyone who disagrees with the sports question as transphobic. And so we can't reach a nuanced solution like trans people should not be discriminated against in housing, right? Like they, they, that shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't be able to throw someone out of an apartment complex because they're transgender. You shouldn't be able to, in most cases, without exceptions for religious organizations, be able to fire an employee just because yeah. they, trans, they, they change genders. But sports 
we should be able to evaluate things differently and reach a nuanced middle ground where we say, okay, women's sports, it's not fair. So we can't do that. And and here's the thing. I'm okay with transgender uh, men who are people who were born biologically female, but then identify as male and transition to male. I'm okay with them competing in men's sports because there's no disadvantage. The only disadvantage is to them. They're putting themselves at a disadvantage and that's fine. But the, with the, in the case of women's sports, it's not fair. And so yeah. we should be able to have these conversations and reach these nuanced positions, but we can't because the left screams bigot at anybody who questions any of this. And that's really just harmful, I think, in the long run. And just last question on this before we move to economics and, you know, the real stuff, which, which you're known for fee is, do you, I think we're getting to a point where, I don't know the time, I could be really balanced but I think we're getting to a point in time where the next year, maybe two, if we're really unlucky, where this flip, this coin is going to flip. I think people are really getting annoyed at no discussions where, you know, you can't have nuanced debates, where if you sort of have one opinion, you know, like if you're, if you say, oh, I love America, I love the Constitution, oh, you're a racist, bigot, sexist, homophobe, I think people are getting really sick and tired of that. And I think it's the left that overplayed their hands, like, especially if you look at the way, like, you know, Ricky Gervais has been treated, you know, J.K. Rowling has been treated. I think there's a lot of people kind of go, no, stop. We need to have debates. We need, and even if even if I'm wrong on the debate, you know, someone like me, that at least we can have that and enter that. Do you see that, or do you feel that on off social media? Yeah, I do, uh, and, and I think that's part of the problem. You said they've overplayed their hand, and I completely agree. And what I worry is that it's going to engender significant backlash. So, I mean, the trans thing, right? They've pushed it so far to the extreme that I think support for transgender rights and tolerance is going down and is going to keep going down because it's being associated more and more with this extremeness and this far push. And when you shut down the debate, people feel like they can't partially agree. They either have to fully agree, which they're not gonna do because you're taking a crazy stand, or fully disagree. And so I think they are pushing more people to be, uh, to be in opposition with their intolerance and their radicalism. So before we move on to economics, America, don't forget next uh, Saturday, we've got a very special show. We've got Chris Ann Hall coming up. She's a constitutional expert. We're going to do a massive deep dive into the Declaration of Independence. If ever there was a year you need to understand your independence, like, and please do not tweet me saying happy 4th of July. It is not the 4th of July. It is Independence Day. There's a reason it's called that. Don't don't denigrate that sacred day. By the way, it's actually July 2nd, which we can all talk about next week as well. But don't miss out that special show. Getting back to it, Brad, we're going to talk about economics because you do a lot of great work. Fee is one of my favorite websites. There's not a, I've said this in the past many times, there's not a day uh, that goes by that I don't check it. There's great writers like yourself, you've got Hannah Cox, you've got John Milton Moore, brilliant people, great, you know, great information. Sometimes there's opinion pieces on there. Some of the articles that you've written lately are not really opinion pieces, they're more facts. You know, this is the story, this is what's happening. And I wanted to talk to you about some of those. So you wrote an article a couple of days ago um, with this great, wonderful, I have, to, I have to say this on page by George Soros, this wonderful, ah, oh, magnificent $6 trillion budget. Because, you know, that's what America needs. You know, I can't wait. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, right? I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm not going to speak to you here. I think $6 trillion budget, it's not brave enough. I think you need to go $10 trillion. Like, trillion has just become diluted. We need double-figure trillion-dollar budgets. But you pass this bill, you're talking about passing this bill where it's going to end, there's going to be an, a big impact potentially on healthcare. Do you want to tell people what you found out with this bill? Yeah, your, your joke about the trillions is funny because one of the things that's rising on the American left is the theory known as modern monetary theory that essentially posits that deficits don't matter. The government can just print money to pay its bills. And so government spending should be without most barely any restraint, just go nuts. And then my l response is always, 
okay, so then let's end all taxes. Why do you need to tax us? It's the same thing with the trillions and trillions. It's like if you can spend six trillion, even though we can't afford it and it will skyrocket the debt and it will have lots of consequences, I believe. But if you don't think so, why six? Why not 10? Why not 50? Right? Like, why stop there? Like, and they don't have a good answer to that because if they acknowledge that at some point there's consequences, well, then they would have to acknowledge that there's consequences for all of this. And so one of the, the programs that they want are pushing that, that would bankrupt our country is Medicare for all, which is a misleading name for socialist health care. And they actually are trying in the latest six trillion spending bill to backdoor not full Medicare for all, but just an expansion of Medicare. And the idea is that they'll lower the age from 65 to 60 or 55 and just push a few more 10 millions of people onto government health care. And what they're doing is they're trying to just slowly edge us because when the government gets bigger, I don't think you can see it on this Zoom, but I have the Milton Friedman quote uh, on my office wall. There's no thing that what, let me read it exactly. Nothing is so permanent as the temporary government program. Right. So once you get these people on the government health care, you're never going to get them off. So they're trying to slide the scale until they get towards their socialist end goal. And they're trying to do that with health care. They're trying to do that with six trillion dollar spending, with taxes, with Green New Deal, all sorts of things. We're really going through a period of radical change in terms of the government involvement in the economy and in everyday life. And the power grab we're witnessing, if successful, will have serious long-term consequences for America's freedom and its prosperity. Absolutely. And the, the control that you people, that people don't seem to realize when it comes to healthcare, it's huge. Like I live in a country with socialized medicine. Um, now I'm very lucky in the sense that we still have a very small sliver of society and I'm part of it that has private health insurance. Um, but it's going to be outlawed in the next few years. The government keeps bringing it up and the votes keep getting closer and closer. And eventually like in, by 2025, there will be no private insurance. It'll be illegal because it's a two-tier system and that's not healthy. But, you know, one of the things that you have to realize is people say, well, it's just healthcare." It, no, it's controlling the citizens. Like one of the reasons America came out of the pandemic a lot earlier than Ireland, which is one of the most extreme lockdowns of the world and other countries was the argument was, well, the reason we have to lock down is to save the NHS, to save the public health care. We can't overburden it. And you see, the thing is, we have that control over because we guarantee your health care because we control it. And then all of a sudden, if you're reliant on me to pay for your health care, I can tell you what to do. You take that freedom away. Guess what happens? You're not a free person anymore. And it's on healthcare, but it's on so many other issues. And also, I always use this as an analogy, which, you know, I've never gotten an answer from my friends on the left. What government agency do you think runs really efficiently? Because no one ever says anything. And I'm like, and you want to give that government agency, forget Trump or Biden or anybody, even if you could pick the world's best politicians, you want them controlling your life and death decisions? And the answer is, well, it's free, right? How do we break this argument down? Because this is the argument that does my head in. It's free. There's no such thing as free. Every time someone says free, I say no. What you mean is taxpayer funded. There is no such thing as free. It's a total myth. It's a rhetorical tool. But part of the problem is that people need to understand that, like you said, when you give up the private market in favor of a government program, you're not just shifting the payment onto taxpayers, you're shifting the control. So for example, if you have socialized healthcare here in the United States, well, all of a sudden, I mean, if we're paying for your healthcare, maybe we should get to control whether you smoke or not, or what you're eating, right? Because that contributes to the taxpayer costs. And it's like- They're doing that, sugar taxes. Yeah, you erode slowly and slowly the sense of personal responsibility and accountability and individual freedom and responsibility that really has undermined America and made it what it is and made it in so many ways so great. And that's why I look at Europe and there are some things about Europe that are good, but largely there are taking America towards... I love soccer. So Europe oh, okay, has much that's okay. soccer. Okay, we agree on that one. Uh, than the U.S. Our, our soccer is not very high level in, in the MLS. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
Sam so, Beckman's going to change that, though. Single-handedly. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, but when people want to take us towards the direction of Europe, which is, I think, what the Bernie Sanders and AOC people want, is they want to make us like a socialist European country or, or a socialist light or democratic yeah. socialist, as they would say. No, they're way worse. I look at, yeah, well, they're actually worse than a lot of the yeah. European countries. Yeah. Their policies are much more radical than Sweden or Norway in yeah. reality. But they want to take us in the, in the European direction on healthcare, And I'm like, actually, the U.S. the U.S. healthcare system, though, to be clear, is extremely messed up and broken. It is not free market. It is highly regulated and subsidized and crony and broken. But despite that, it still has private enterprise and profit motive. And that's why it is there are problems with it. But it is the single most innovative healthcare system in the world. We have 4% of the world's population, but I believe over 40% of the medical innovation. And that's because of the profit motive. Most of Europe free rides on American pioneering innovation and medical technology because we have that profit motive and they don't. Um, and, and so to go to a fully socialized system would ruin the last redeemable part of our healthcare, which is you can get really good healthcare in the US. It's just crazy expensive because it's so regulated and broken and corrupt but you can get very high quality care um and very innovative care because we have some semblance of a market left and that's what they want to destroy yeah and also in europe which i always say to people is just because you have health care quote unquote does not mean you're getting care there is a very important distinction to make you understand that and it's worded many different ways with many different people but you know we all have a public system that you know everyone can get care you're all covered but guess what there's still a point in time where people go and they go, oh no i'm sorry you can't have that hip replacement you know you're 80 years of age you're you know that's not worth it it's, it's not economically possible and it's just not worth it you just get home and live in pain and you know you're at the end of your days anyway you know you have these different stories that you hear all the time. You have countless, there's a report every three months in Ireland, like clockwork, of A&E waiting times. And it's never a, lot, a simple wait. Why? Because the system is overburdened and the abuse, like literally, you know, this is pre-COVID, the abuse, the amount of people who would go to A&E because of alcohol, because they have a hangover, was through the roof, not actual cases, because they want to sleep it off. And that's taking up A&E, that's taking up resources. But it's a really bad thing where you have a society over here where we literally would look, you know, I'm sure you've seen the show or heard of it. I don't watch it, but there's a show, was it your 400 pound man or 500 pound man or something over there? My 400 pound life. Yeah. That people literally over here because of socialized medicine will look at that and kind of go, what a burden on the taxpayer. That is literally the attitude. Whereas I'm like looking at those stories kind of go, this is a lifestyle of, you know, feeling sorry for someone and, you know, we need to empower them, him, her, whatever, or whatever they identify as. I don't want to, I don't want to gender someone or misgender someone, but, um, but you know, that they have, a, they can get a life, they can make things better for themselves. Yeah, and that's how it should be looked at, but that's not how it is looked at because part of the idea that that you have a right to everything, therefore the government must provide it, necessarily means that the government must control it. And when it some people will say, well, healthcare is too important to be trusted to a free market. And I'll say, if anything, the more important something is, all the more need for it to be entrusted to a free market because the free market is a lot more efficient than a government agency. And it's not the case that anything that is essential must therefore be socialized. To give an example, food is pretty darn essential, you would say. But in the U.S., uh, with the exception of like food stamps and a few subsidy programs for poor people that allow them to access the market, which I think, honestly, in many ways, um, I do support some level of that. They, we have a free market for food. You walk into a grocery store and there's 10 different brands of baked beans. There's 50 different brands of cereal, right? The, sh the shelves are always full. There's never a queue or a line to get milk or shortages, right? Because you have this free market system that delivers and is driven by profit and efficient. And yes, you could say, well, food is a human right and food is essential to life. So the government must secure it. 
But who thinks that we should have government-run grocery stores or that if we did, they would be anywhere near as good in terms of making the trains run on time and the variety and the quality as what we have now? No one seriously thinks that. Even AOC and Bernie haven't said we need government grocery stores. They haven't said it yet. Who knows? Give them time. (laughs) Watch. By the time this podcast is released, they will have introduced legislation to nationalize stop and shop. Uh, but the point is that, that the same thing that's true for food is true for healthcare. Although healthcare is a, a more complicated industry in some ways, in some ways it's even less complicated. Uh, and just because it's important doesn't mean it can be not entrusted to the market. If anything, the opposite is true. Absolutely, and like I think free markets has you know people like me and you who believe in them need to really do, and people don't like when I use these words, but we a sell job on it because when I try to explain to people at all the free market, I'm afraid of that, and you know that's rampant competition. The free market's you. It's basically saying you have a choice to to go however how you want. Now you may make a really dumb decision. I don't recommend that. Get advice from your healthcare practitioner, your doctor, someone you trust, the nurse in the family, whatever it is. But it's you. You go find out who it was. Whereas the government making the decision for decision for you, as we've seen, you know, especially in healthcare, where if it's not FDA approved and you have six months to live or six weeks to live, and it's not FDA approved, you still can't get it. You still can't try it. You have zero power. It's government has everything. And I think that's something that we need to get back to to try and explain the free market is actually you. This reminds me of something I saw in the New York Post a, a few days ago. It was, The headline was, a heart attack survivor who drank 12 energy drinks a day uh, speaks out and is trying to get energy drinks banned. And I quote tweeted that. I was like, why are you trying to nanny state everyone else because of your bad decisions? Like, you should not drink 12 energy drinks a day. That's not no. going to be good for you. That shouldn't need to be said. Right, you knew that you made a horrible decision. Uh, I have you know, if there was a warning label on that, do not drink twelve of these a day. Problem solved. There probably was though. There probably was (laughs) that like, don't drink. This can cause. I'm sure there was a huge FDA label on it, and he drank twelve anyway. But my point is, is that like Milton Friedman has this saying, like, and I'm gonna butcher it because I don't have the exact quote, but underlying most arguments against uh, against freedom is a lack of belief in people themselves because freedom ultimately means individual decision-making and choices. And sometimes people think that, that we can't let people make their own choices because some things are too important. What if they choose wrong? And some people will choose wrong, but I would argue that everyone choosing for themselves will get you closer to the collective best outcome because everybody knows their own situation their own preferences and their habits and their risk factors. They know their own situation and details and cost benefit analysis much better than the government knows for everybody. So when you decentralize decision-making, some people will make bad choices like choosing to drink 12 energy drinks a day, but most people won't. And if you try to have some bureaucrats in an office decide for everybody instead, you'll end up with a worse outcome for everyone. Absolutely. And like this calm, this art nonsense, you can argue like, you know, what are you saying drinking? You should be allowed to drink 12 energy drinks a day. Even you think that's stupid. So why don't we just pass that law? And it's like, it's not up to me. It, you know, I, I, I believe in true equality. All men are created equal. Therefore, what does that mean to me? It means, guess what? I can't tell you what to do, but also you can't tell me what to do. And I have a God-given right to be an idiot. And I do have that right. If I think, oh, I'm fine, I'll be the one who survives drinking 12 energy drinks a day. Or you remember that you remember that movie, 20, you're probably maybe a bit too young to remember this, Super Size Me, where the guy went and lived on McDonald's for 30 days? Yeah, yeah, I do know no that. No idea. Don't recommend you do that. But not also because I don't like McDonald's. But if you want to do that, if you're like, no, what, you know what, I'd survive, I'd handle that challenge better than that dude did, then do it. You have a right to be an idiot. No one should be able to tell you don't. Um but the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because this is another bugbear in mind trying to tell, especially Americans about taxes over here, is you wrote an article, um, I think it's about a week ago now, where Joe Biden, you know, no new taxes for over anyone who earns on, over under 400000 And you've done this article where the average person is going to pay $2,930 more, but even his campaign promise was a lie, because if you earn up to $100,000, 
you're going to pay an extra $440. If you earn over $200,000, it's going to be an $830 tax increase. So it's another campaign lie. What, what, where, how do we explain this to people? I think the, it, this is a matter of basic economics. Um, and Thomas Sowell once said that the first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. So politicians are constantly going to make promises and claims that are not true when it comes to the economy and economics, because they have an incentive to say what people want to hear, not what is actually true. And so Biden promised nobody would see their taxes increase unless they're rich, unless they earn more than $400,000. This was always untrue, but it was especially untrue when you, when you kind of take a basic principle of economics, the difference between tax incidence and tax assignment. And that sounds like fancy lingo, but it basically means like who formally pays the tax on paper versus who actually pays the costs in reality. And so one of his big things is we're going to pay for all my big spending by raising corporate taxes on big business. But the problem is that corporate taxes, economists basically agree on this, are largely borne by workers. They end up with lower wages, 50 to 70 percent of the amount of the tax. So if you you pass a huge corporate tax increase on paper, you can say, I'm not raising anybody's taxes who isn't um, big business. In reality, you're raising the middle class's taxes and you're raising them by a large amount because 50 to 70% of that tax is going to ultimately come out of their pocketbook. And that's what this report I did, this analysis you're citing, is pointing out. It's that his promises just aren't true if you even understand the most basic of economics. But this is part of the problem most people don't and there's very low economic literacy in the public and that's not necessarily individuals fault because our school systems don't teach enough economics and the ones that do teach some crazy marxist stuff sometimes uh but that's one of our missions at fee and one of my personal missions is to bring that to the public and try to help them see through the political rhetoric and understand the basic economic realities that, that explain why you can't have something for nothing and there's no such thing as a free lunch from the government. Absolutely. And, ta- and also taking people at their word. You have politicians there who are talking about the European style of socialism. I say this to people all the time. If you are in Ireland and you're a worker, the top rate of tax is 40%. You're eligible for that. Obviously, the exchange rate fluctuates. It's about 34,000 euros, which is about 30,000, 7,000, 38,000, obviously, depending on the exchange rate, dollars. So, you know, it always goes, well, you know, the rich should pay more. The rich is you eventually. And like that's in Ireland and Europe and different places. You've done a spending spree over the last year, which has just gone absolutely blown your debt out of the water. You're spending trillions of dollars. Do you think that isn't you? And then at the end of the day, it comes down to an economic principle. If you earn money, who owns that money? You or the government? It's you, you look at it that the government says, well, the government owns it and it lets me keep. X percent, 20 percent, 40 percent, 60 percent, or is it you and you earn this? And like everyone should want to keep their own money, regardless of what riches you are. And I think it's, it's important that we get to that point and explain it to people. I agree. And people also need to realize that there are more forms of taxation than just your direct taxes. So one of the things that we're experiencing here in the U.S. right now is seriously high levels of inflation compared to the recent lows of one or two percent. Now, the last couple months have shown year over year numbers of four or five percent inflation, which sounds small, but basically means your paycheck in reality is five percent smaller because you can buy five percent less with it. So that is coming from the Federal Reserve printing trillions of dollars to pay for this massive stimulus. Um, because they didn't want to directly raise taxes because people would get mad. But I mean, if they just inflate the currency, they're just taxing you indirectly. It's a stealth tax. And so that's part of the problem because people don't understand that. They don't fully hold the politicians accountable for raising their taxes and the politicians get away with economic deception. And also the ta- those things about those types of taxes and inflation is it's the poorest people in society. I always use my boss as an example. If inflation is 5%, Glenn Beck is still going to be really, really rich. And it's not going to have much of, obviously he has to pay more and it's different things, but it's not affecting his day-to-day lifestyle. 
someone who's on minimum wage, you take 5% of their 300 bucks a week. That's a big, that's $15. That's $15 less. That's a movie ticket. That's a, you know, a, a bottle of wine. That's going in. That's, and that has not gone effect. But it's always the poorest in society that get hurt with this. And I want to finish up because be, I know you've got to go, but there's one more story which you did great work on. Again, talking about the poorest in society and big government. It's not that, you know, people who believe in freedom are for the big guy. We're for everyone. And usually these policies hurt the people at the bottom of society where you did another article about a week ago where you actually looked at the unemployment figures for because of COVID and what the pandemic has done. And anyone earning less than $27,000, which again is not that much money, their unemployment levels are 23.6% lower. 27,000 to 60,000, they're 4.5% lower. But guess what? Anyone earning over 60,000, they got their, there's more of them employed by 2.4%. So this pandemic, you know, should be the left should hate us. Why? Because the rich got richer. The big businesses are, and the big people and the big jobs got more of them than the smaller guy got, got crushed. Where, where did you find these numbers and where did you come up? How did you come across them? That comes from uh, a study, actually, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with Harvard and We Brown. all know they're radical right-wingers, right? <laughs> right. The numbers are just the numbers. You can't lie about the numbers. And it shows you the rich got richer, and then the middle class and working class, really the working class, not the middle class, suffered. And why? Not because of free market capitalism and greed, because of big government if you, for example, were a journalist at the New York Times earning six figures with a degree from Columbia, well, you just worked remotely in the pandemic and tweeted all day and got your income was unaffected. But if you were a cafeteria worker or a bus driver or anyone out working in the real world in blue collar jobs, your livelihood was shut down and shut off. And now when things are reopening, a lot of the businesses aren't reopening. Some are, and I hope many can, but a lot of them will never recover. And a lot of those jobs are gone and not coming back. And so this massive government intervention into the economy hurt the working class and the poor, not the rich, right? It was speaking generally. There's individual yeah. cases that might be an exception, but that is the trend. And people need to realize that's not just pandemic policy. That applies to most policies. Anytime you have bailouts and subsidies and tax hikes, you're going to have armies of lobbyists descend on Washington, D.C., making sure that those policies work in favor of the well-connected. But, you know, your bus driver down the street or your barber doesn't have a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., like Jeff Bezos has an army of them. So the things that come out, the big government schemes into the economy, you're naive if you fall for the progressive promises that they're going to champion the working class and take down the elite because who do you think is writing the laws? The elite themselves and their army, armies of lobbyists. Absolutely. And like this is the, I think, the big thing about surviving America because I love America, the country, but I love the idea and the principles a lot more because they truly change the world. And I think, you know, they need to be remembered and understood why you change the world. But like one of the things is what frustrates me is it's not even a close call. It's not like you'd say our side of the, the free market argument has, you know, these results and like the people who like government and it's a real, like it's a judgment call, you know, it, and one day you could go one side and the other side, you know, it depends on how you wake up. It's a slam dunk. The people who believe in free markets, we have the facts, we have the opinions, we have all the empirical data of leaving people alone and letting people prosper. Yes, there'll be some sad stories and, and things, but that's always happens. That happens on the other side too. But you know, the idea of you know pursuing your God-given right of happiness is a powerful idea compared to government destroying, whether it's jobs, whether it's on healthcare, whether it's on drugs, whether it's the mental health and suicides that they did because of COVID shutting everything down. Government is a wrecking ball. It does nothing good. And I think if we're going to survive this and come out of this, which please God we do, because government has so much power, especially because of COVID, with the Great Reset and Agenda 2030 and all these different plans, we need the idea of America now more than ever. Final thoughts. Uh, amen to all of that, man. And thanks for having me on the show. Your listeners, if they think I have something interesting to say, should also check out my podcast, Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Absolutely. And you had Dave Rubin this week. Yeah, my guest this week was Dave Rubin talking about What did how you all discuss? I haven't got a chance to listen yet. 
big government and woke insanity are basically ruining California, despite it having amazing weather and great natural natural resources. He moved there in 2013, and he tells the story of how he's watched it just decline and decline and decline under progressive rule. It's an interesting episode. People should definitely check out. Absolutely. And where can other people, because you write for Fee, which is a great website, which we'll link to, but you also write for other websites as well. Was it DC Examiner? Yeah, but the easiest way is people just go to my Twitter, twitter.com slash Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O, and just follow me there, and you'll be able to keep up with everything. Absolutely, I highly recommend it. Brad's a great guy. You may not always agree with everything he says, but he's honest, and the one thing I love about him is he's refreshing in the sense that he's not a fire thrower. Apart from the, you know, he, he does have this odd tweet where if you hate uh, iced coffee, it's you're, you're, you hate gay people. Um, but, like, yeah. he actually talks this stuff. Um, but, like, you know, he's not a fan thrower going, you're a liberal and you're this. He actually talks to you. Um, America, we finish this show the way we do each and every week, saluting you, the American people. The sentiments is hope that are, remember, are key to remember. America is great because Americans are good. You're not great because the Republicans or Democrats or Trump or Biden. You're great because of each and every one of you. And each and every one of you, your creativity and your imagination will solve these crises and lead to a great 21st century for America. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and best week. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn. On the Blaze Radio Network.